You know, over the years as a pastor, I've done a lot of, a lot of different funerals um, for different folks. Uh, in 2016, I uh, helped to officiate a funeral church member at uh, my former church, Calvary, a lady that died at, at 103 years old. She lived to be 103 years old, lived a, a long life, loved the Lord, served the Lord, had a full life, wonderful family, um, and I don't think anybody was surprised when she passed away, maybe surprised that she lived as long as she did. But uh, uh, years before that, and I've had a couple instances uh, where this has happened. Actually, a few months ago, I did a funeral similar to this. But uh, at my first church that I pastored, this was the first funeral like this that I had done. I was uh, actually playing golf, got a phone call. Uh, someone who was a church member, guy in his 40s, had died suddenly of a heart attack. And uh, I did that funeral and um, ministered to the family, got to know the family. Uh, everyone was surprised at that. No one expected that. There was no other, no, no signs, no other health issues that anybody was aware of. And so two extremes there, but one thing was common. You know, different circumstances, one expected, one not so much, but both families grieved. And their grief was real and it was uh, painful, and so just because one young, one older, there was still grief that took place, and they had that in common, and that's, that's a natural response, right? When we lose somebody that we care about, someone that we love, a natural response is to grieve that person. If we love much, we grieve much because we love much, um, and we as friends of that family, folks that minister to that family, uh, we want to help them. We want to serve them. Uh, we want them to feel better. Uh, but if we're honest, a lot of us, we want to do, we, we take them a covered dish or we do, maybe not right now, but, uh, you know, we do things like that. And then we are eager to get back on with our normal lives, right? We want to get back on. We don't want to, to sit there and dwell there for a little while. Um, we want to, we don't like to think about those things. We don't like to be, nobody likes to be sad. Uh, and that's kind of how we handle those situations. But if you go back to Jesus' day, um, that is not how they grieved at all. Um, they would, out in the open, would grieve. They would tear the clothes off their backs. They would wail in public. They would scream in agony. They would scoop dirt up off the ground and shake it on their heads. And they would stay there in that grief for weeks, friends would stay with them, family would stay with them, and they would grieve for weeks. That's how they grieved in Jesus' day. So when you look at the second beatitude, which Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and you put it into that context, it seems a little crazy, right? It seems a little bit ridiculous, but that is exactly what he said. Blessed are those who mourn. And we can take a lesson from this. When we look at what he means here, just like last week, and we put it all together, we will learn just why and just how they were blessed. We look at people who have lost, and we think that they're in a bad fix, and they are. Uh, whatever they've lost. Uh, some would say maybe they're cursed, if they've lost or repeatedly lose. We want to be done with mourning. We want to move on to happier things. But maybe, just maybe, we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying in this second beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And that's where we'll be today. 
We're in a new series. This is the second week called To Be or Not to Be, where we're looking at the Beatitudes. And what we said last week, what we're going to learn through these this series through these Beatitudes is that the Beatitudes show us, they describe the inner qualities of a true disciple. They show us what a follower of Christ looks like, what it means to be a follower of Christ, how to live as a follower of Christ. They answer two very important questions that all of us, I believe, have and have asked at some point in our lives. What does Jesus want from me and what does he want for me? What does he expect from me And what does he want to give me? How does he want to bless me in my life? We can divide them into two categories. Uh, The first four deal with our relationship to God. The last deal with, uh, the remaining deal with our relationship to other people and how we relate to other people. Our responsibilities to other people. We look at the Beatitudes and, and, you know, we can, we're called to live out these principles. We're called to live for Christ, to show these principles. And we see that if you are a follower of Christ, you will see these lived out in your daily life. Uh, those who are, poor, who, are, who are poor in spirit, they recognize their spiritual poverty, and as a result, they mourn over their spiritual poverty, which we'll talk about today. They, those who are gentle will hunger and thirst for righteousness. One leads to the next. We should be merciful. We should be pure in heart. Those who are merciful are pure in heart, and they desire, they desire righteousness. They desire to make peace, and so they set about making peace, attempting to help folks find peace with God, and they end up being persecuted for it. They end up being hassled because of it. That's the message of the Beatitudes. But these are the characteristics, and we think of them as a staircase. Each one leads to the next, and each one is dependent upon the one before it. They all work together. It's not a test where if you get 60 or 70%, whatever it takes to pass now, uh, it was 60 when I was in school. I think it, the, the standard's a little higher, but it's not a test where if you get 6 out of 10, you pass. It's all or nothing. These are the characteristics of a disciple, a follower of Christ, and these are the characteristics, these are the things that God expects from us. His Holy Spirit living through us, living out these characteristics each and every day. So if you think about it, if we're supposed to view these as a staircase, one leads to the next, each one depends on the one before it, then it makes sense that someone who recognizes their true spiritual condition before Christ, as we talked about last week, their spiritual poverty in Christ, it makes sense that they would mourn over that, doesn't it? It makes sense that they would mourn over the fact that they are in sin and separated from God. So, how are we blessed? That's the question. Same as last week. How are we blessed? in the midst of that morning? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, the answer to that. Number one, the answer lies in the complexity of mourning. We need to have an understanding of what it means to mourn. When we say blessed, when Jesus says blessed are those who mourn, what does it mean to mourn? Well, there are two primary ways we mourn, two things that we think of. One is we mourn over sin, and that's the direct context, right? You recognize your spiritual poverty, you mourn over your sinful condition, and we should. We should mourn over the fact that we are sinful and we are separated from God before we're saved. And we should still mourn over sin when we commit sin as believers, and it affects our relationship with God. That's what drives us to confession, conviction, and mourning. 
James 4, 8 through 10 says, draw near and he will draw near to, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, the Jews knew how to mourn. I mean, they, they, they dealt with their grief. and They didn't try to run away from it. And so again, when you think about who Paul, uh, I mean, who James is talking to there and who we're, we're seeing Jesus as a Jew talking to his disciples at the beginning of these Beatitudes and all those listening, it makes sense that they understood the depth and the seriousness of their situation. They mourned and that he's calling them not to just passingly, hey, I feel sorry for you. You know, here's a cake feel better. No, mourn over your spiritual condition. And we should mourn over sin. If you look at journal entries of spiritual giants, you will see at some point them shedding tears over their sin and mourning over their spiritual condition. It's a natural response. And when we think about our condition in the shadow of the cross, our sinful condition and the separation that exists between us and God, mourning is a natural response to that. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that's a great promise, but the key word there is if. If we confess our sins, it's a whole lot easier to rationalize, to justify, to cover up, to try to make excuses. Pride keeps us from confession. It's so much easier to try to look at myself and compare myself to somebody else. Well, I'm, I may have done some bad things, guy, but I'm a whole lot better than this guy, whoever this guy is. I'm not pointing at anybody in the room. But we do that, don't we? It's so much easier to do that. Hey, I, you know, I've got a job. I do my job. I, I take care. I put food on the table. I pay my taxes. I even give to whatever charity give to my church. I do all these good things. So compared to others, I'm pretty good. And we all tend to think that way from time to time, if we're honest. But to really get serious about our sin, to admit that we've done wrong, to mourn over our sin, to confess our sins, that's, that's what's required. It's difficult. It requires humility. It requires setting aside our pride, getting over swallowing our pride but that's exactly what we're called to do if we're going to experience true forgiveness jesus said blessed are those who mourn to mourn for your sins is a natural response to being poor in spirit and this shows again staircase the second beatitude naturally follows the first it should follow the first it's not always the case a lot of people deny their weakness they cover it up but it should we know when we sin, we know we're wrong. If we're honest, we don't have to be told we're wrong. I mean, yeah, there are times where the Holy Spirit shows us things that we're not aware of. But when we do something wrong, we know we're wrong. But we have to admit that we're wrong. And so when we refuse to do that, we miss, and this seems contradictory, but we miss the beautiful sorrow of repentance, of mourning, and then receiving forgiveness, turning away from that. Jesus tells us true blessedness begins with deep sadness, which we don't, we, we don't like to, to think about. We don't want to believe, but blessed are those who know they are in trouble 
and have enough sense to admit it. That's another way to put those first two Beatitudes together. I know I'm in sin and I've got enough sense. I've got enough sense to admit that I need help. And so I mourn over my sin. Blessed are those who grieve over sin, who are broken because they are separated from God. Jesus' mission was precisely to comfort sinners. The blessedness is in the comfort, which we'll talk, to, talk about in a few moments. So we mourn over sin. We also mourn over personal losses, right? Nick Wolterstorff wrote a book called Lament for a Son. He talked about losing his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. And he talked about, how the, he talked about the fact that even though the wound was, was not still raw, it was there and it would always be there. And he said, you know, that's, that's the way it should be. He says, if he was worth loving, then he was worth grieving over. And so it's, it's there. It just is there in a different way. He, he gives an excellent definition for grieving. He says, grief is existential testimony to the worth of the one loved. You grieve much because you loved much. Every lament is a love song, he says. It testifies to the love that you had for that person. But the natural question that we have in times of grief, in times of loss, is why? Why did this happen? In times of suffering, trials, difficulties, why did this happen? Why does one person get sick and another stay healthy? Have you asked that question in the past few months? Why does anybody get sick at all? Why do we have to deal with sickness in this world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the truth is, a lot of these questions, the answers are hidden. They're mysteries, and they're hidden in the heart of God. For, for whatever reason, he chooses many times not to give us the answer to the question, why? One day we'll know, but we may not know in this life. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read, The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. There's an answer to the question, but the answer is hidden from view. It's hidden in the mind and the heart of God. Romans 11, Paul says, no one knows the mind of God. He says in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his, his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has ever given first, given to him and has, has, has to be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. No one gives God advice. God, and listen, this sounds cruel, but it's, it's the truth because we get in this frame of mind that God owes us something. You know, that, Lord, if I do this for you, then you can, you're going to pay me back, right? In love, God doesn't owe us anything. I mean, you think about what he's done for us, and it was all grace. None of it was earned. God doesn't owe us anything. And I know it's hard to, to accept, especially when you're hurting, but even in those moments, God doesn't owe us answers. Many times he does give us answers, but sometimes he doesn't. He is the sovereign God. And, and, and you may not ever have an answer to the question why, but here is your answer, and here's the answer that will help heal your heart when you're hurting. The answer is not a thing, it's a person. 
The answer is, I am that I am. That's the answer. It's the person of God. It's drawing close to him. It's finding the comfort that he's speaking about in these verses. You know, because the reality is, you know, if you say that's not enough, well, if, if God is not enough, and hear me again, in love, if God is not enough, the answer to the question is why will certainly not be enough. Because it's not going to take the pain away. It's not going to take the hurt away. If you want healing, if you want comfort, I am that I am. That's where you find comfort. In the person of God and his loving hand on your life. You know, I, I, I've, I've sat in rooms where... In, where, where a father who was in his 50s died tragically, four-wheeler accident in, the, in the, the trauma room, watching his family cry, laying over him in the bed. I didn't try to answer the question why. They had those questions, but no answer I could give could take away their pain. And I've learned in 20 years of ministry, over 20 years, 16 years as a pastor, in those moments, I don't really try to answer those hard questions. Better to be silent before the Lord than to try to answer a question that's not going to help in the moment anyway, that I don't really have the answers to. I don't know why pain happens. I don't know why loss happens. I know it happens because there's sin in the world, but I don't know why it happens to some people and not others. can't explain to that family why their dad was killed on a four-wheeler. Can't explain to that family why their son died suddenly in, their, in his bedroom at their house. I mean, I, I can't explain those things. But I can point them to a Savior that loves them. A God who cares for them. A God who will provide for them. You know, there's loss. And in those moments, we grieve. And grief accomplishes some things for us. Really quickly, grief accomplishes, it gives us compassion for those. You know, it doesn't take away the pain, but you have more compassion for those that are hurting once you've gone through hurt, once you've hurt yourself. Galatians 6.2, Paul tells us, carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That same man, Walter Storff, who wrote that book about his son, he talked about how one of the things that, it, that losing his son accomplished for him is that, that he would never go through uh, the world, look at the world with dry eyes again. What he meant by that is a lot of times those of us who haven't hurt, we, we are dry-eyed. We don't pay attention to the hurts of others. You know, the fact that there's war going on, that people are suffering, that people are being persecuted, that there's pain, we, we tend to be ignorant. We tend to be callous toward the pain in other people's lives instead of being sensitive to it. And when you've gone through hurt, you're more sensitive to the pain of the people around you. He says, when you and I are left to our own devices... It's the smiling, successful ones of the world that we cheer. We turn away from the crying ones of the world. Our photographers tell us to smile for the camera. Blessed are those who mourn, though, Jesus says. So what does it mean? Well, for one thing, it means that we're blessed with a new sense of compassion towards others. That's not all, but that's something of empathy toward people. We have empathy. It also means that we maintain a proper eternal perspective. 2 Corinthians 4.18 I do not fix my eyes. We do not fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is only temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Even pain and grief, as bad as it is, is temporary. If you're a child of God, you have eternity 
to look forward to, where there is no pain and suffering. In mourning, we receive a new anticipation for the return of Christ. Again, Revelation 21.4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no longer uh, grief, crying. None of that will exist because the previous things, all of that will have passed away. We ache for his return. We cry for his return. And when we're hurting in life, when we're going through struggles and suffering, we ache more. And we live with a little bit more anticipation. We make our minutes count a little bit more. We think about the fact that he could come back at any moment. And so we live in anticipation. You know, the Stoics of antiquity said, be be calm, just disengage yourself. But Jesus says, be open to the wounds of the world. Deal with your own hurt, your own grief, your own anger. Let that fuel your love and your eagerness for his return. But do so, don't miss this, because so far this is a pretty depressing message, right? Do so with the peace of knowing that one day Jesus will return and will comfort your hurts and will take away your pain. And while we wait... We can know that he will comfort us in the present. Our mourning helps us also to have the heart of God. If, you know, if nothing else, uh, we're, we're able to snuggle up to the heart of God, to feel what God feels. He mourns over sin. You know, he, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, Jesus was a human. He knows what pain is all about, uh, more so than any of us. And so we can comfort up, we can snuggle up, we see things the way that God sees. We see the world through his eyes. We see sin for what it really is. We mourn as God mourns, and Jesus says, because of that, you're blessed. But again, to leave things here is pretty depressing, so let's get on to the next point. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted, the comfort of the Savior. The Bible promises those who mourn that God will comfort them. And in times of suffering, one of the ways that that God comforts us is he draws near to those who hurt. He draws near to those who are in pain. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. God promises his presence in the midst of our pain. Through the Holy Spirit, he himself draws near to us. And and he's with us in those intense times, in those painful times. If we look to him, we feel his presence in powerful ways, ways that go beyond the natural, beyond our ability to explain peace that passes all human comprehension. We hear his voice even though there's no sound in the room. We know he's there. We feel his presence. We hear him speaking to us, calming us. We feel that peace. We can't explain it. But it's there, and he loves us, and he comforts us. You know, I've heard Christians talk about the nearness, and I've experienced it to some degree in my life. I've heard people talk about the nearness they felt during intense times of sorrow, the nearness they felt to God. You can't manufacture that in any other way but through suffering. It's a sad reality that we have to suffer, but the beauty in suffering is that we feel closeness to God. And we depend on him in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. And he knows that. That's why he uses it as he does. He doesn't cause suffering. That's a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world. But he uses suffering. He draws close to us. 
And then God also uses suffering to draw us to himself. He draws us to himself. That same psalm, Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from my fears. I sought the Lord. I drew close to the Lord, and he heard me. Ron Dunn says, you'll never know know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then and only then will you discover that Jesus is really all that you need. You know, we cry out to God more in times of suffering because we realize we don't have anything else. We don't have anywhere else to turn. And sometimes I believe God allows some things to happen in our lives because that's the only way he can get our attention and get us to focus our attention on him. Listen, I don't know why all of what's happening in our world right now is happening, but I believe with all my heart that that's one of the reasons. He's forcing us into a situation or allowing us into a situation because he knows maybe, just maybe, this is the only thing that'll, that'll cause us to turn our eyes toward him. And everything we thought we knew that we were comfortable with has been shaken, but he has not. And so we can look to him, and that's one of the things he wants to accomplish in our lives. Another way God comforts us during times of suffering is spiritual growth. We grow faster, and we grow more in times of suffering. I've also talked to people on the other side of suffering that in a way kind of missed it because they grew so much, and they felt so close to the Lord during that time. And now that they were on the other side, not that, you know, loss or anything like that ever goes away, but they were on the other side of that intense suffering. They sort of longed for it in the sense that they wanted to be that close to the Lord. They were missing that closeness, that spiritual growth that took place. We grow more in times of suffering than we do in good times. Romans 5, 4, I mean 5 verses 2 through 4 kind of describes the process that God uses to develop godly character in our lives. And in verse 3, Paul says, we rejoice in our afflictions. Again, very closely related to this, right? It seems crazy, but he says we rejoice in our, uh, our afflictions. may seem like a misprint, but it's the truth. It's what he's saying. You know, it doesn't mean that we rejoice because we're hurting. You know, we don't, we don't rejoice because of the pain. We're not happy because we're hurting. That's not even a Christian idea. It doesn't say we rejoice because of our afflictions. He says we rejoice in our afflictions, in the midst of our afflictions. Even in the worst moments, God's people can rejoice because we can know that God is at work doing something important in us. What is he doing? Well, look at verse 4 of Romans 5. He's producing endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, it's an interesting progression in that verse. Rejoice in your afflictions. And then God's love has been poured out in your heart. So what starts with suffering ends with the love of God. It's an interesting progression. It's an interesting concept if you really think about it. Because in this scenario, in the way you experience God's love in Romans 5, verse 5, you can't experience that love until you, unless you start with suffering. 
Maybe that's because we identify with God in a way that we could not possibly outside of suffering. Maybe that's because we look to God a little more in the midst of suffering. Maybe that's because we depend on him greater in the midst of suffering. And maybe it's because we experience him developing our character and endurance. And maybe all of that leads to a more intimate relationship with Christ that we never would experience outside of suffering. The suffering, though, leads to that intimacy, the experience of the love of God that you can't find anywhere else. I do hope, I pray that in the midst of all of this church family that we are looking to our Savior, that we are depending on Him more than we ever have, that we are experiencing the endurance that He provides, that we are allowing Him to build our character in ways that He couldn't outside of a pandemic. I pray that we are experiencing the love of God in a way we never have before. Because if we do, all of this will be worth it. If nothing else happens other than that, all of this will be worth it. What starts with suffering ends with the love of God. What an amazing promise. In addition, our sufferings qualify us to minister to others. Gives us the the, the knowledge, the ability. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.4. God tells us, he com- that he comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort others, those who are in any kind of affliction, through the comfort we ourselves receive. That word comfort in this verse is the same word that Jesus uses in the second beatitude. It's the same word, the same idea. He uses our suffering to comfort us, and he comforts us in the middle of our suffering so we can comfort others in the midst of their suffering. I mean, think about it. Nobody understands cancer like somebody who's had it, right? Nobody understands what it's like to lose someone close besides someone who's lost someone. Nobody understands the pain of losing their job like someone who's lost their job. I mean, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons we go through these things is so that we can minister to others. Nobody understands the pain of a miscarriage like a mother who's lost her baby, right? It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't explain, answer all the whys, but there's comfort in using that to minister to others, Jesus says. We can find comfort in using our pain, our suffering, to identify, to empathize with those who are hurting in ways that those of us who haven't experienced that can't. There are people in this church There are those of you out there watching, you are uniquely qualified to minister to people in ways that I cannot, that others in this room cannot, because you've experienced things that I have not and others have not. These, with those people, you have such an important message to share, and that's that God will take care of you. I know because he took care of me. He'll comfort you in the midst of your suffering. And all of this speaks to God's character, and that's number three, the character of God. God is sovereign, and because, and this is a tough one to swallow, folks, I know it is, but I, again, through my years of ministry, I've seen this play out time and time again. Because God is sovereign, and we are not, many of our questions, especially during times of suffering, are not going to be answered in this life. Again, I, I've said 
in rooms, tragedy. And I, I, I stopped really early on in my ministry trying to answer those questions, especially in the moment. You know, there's some questions I can't answer, but some of them I can't. And, and, and that's because I don't have the answers. You know, God does, and he knows, but, but in his sovereignty, he chooses not to answer them sometimes. But because, and, and don't miss this, you may not have all the answers to the questions, but what you can know is that God is good. And because he's good, we know that he has our best interests at heart, and we know that he'll take care of us. That's the meaning behind Romans 8.28. For all things, we know that all things work together for the good. Not that all things are good, but they work for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. If you believe that God is good, even when facing pain, if you believe that he loves you and that he is good, you can endure things that would break most people. But if you ever begin to doubt that, you're either going to become a secret atheist or you're just going to become really bitter and angry toward God. But if you really believe that he loves you, if you settle that issue, even when pain comes, you can endure because you look to him. Now, we need to make an important point here. We need to remember, and this is where a lot of people get off track, we need to remember that God's goodness is not, is not um, dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon what we go through. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on our happiness, right? You know, and, and listen, this is true, so it's okay to say this. I'm not getting on you, but I've heard people say, you know, God was good, I tested negative for the virus. Or God is good because... Um, my family member, I mean, we were in a wreck in, in, in October, and I probably said this, meaning it. God was good because everybody survived, right? Nobody got hurt. But even if those, heaven forbid, even if that weren't the case, even if you had tested positive for the virus, even if somebody you loved got it, even if that person who was in that wreck was hurt badly or, or, or again, Lord forbid, worse, would that change God's goodness? It's true, yeah, God's good, and in his goodness, he protected me, but what if that hadn't been the case? Because that happens, right? Bad things happen. Horrible things happen. Does that change God's goodness? God's goodness is not dependent upon my happiness and the pleasantness of my circumstances. God is good, and he loves us, and he's proven that time and time again. It's very important to remember in the midst of all of what we're facing right now, God's character is not on trial in our sufferings. I mean, this world is painful. It's good in a lot of ways, but it's painful. His character is not on trial because I don't feel good or I'm hurting. And, and that's not minimizing pain, and don't take it that way. I know pain is real, and it hurts, and it's no fun, but God is God. And the fact that he's provided anything for us is just grace beyond measure. Mercy. More than we could ever deserve. What we do deserve is so much worse, but he, he saves us, and he sets us apart. And because God is wise, Nothing, we can believe that nothing is wasted on our experience. I read to you Romans 8, 28, look at verse, verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his image, the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. He takes what we go through and he uses everything 
to shape us, to mold us, to carve us into his image. It's going through this, thinking a lot about China, thinking a lot about um, you know, when we, we got Eli. And one of the things we did while we were in China, we went to a museum. It was called uh, Chin Ancestral Hall. It was a folk art museum. And that one of the things that we saw there, there were these amazing carvings that were done. I brought a few pictures. One of these, this is an ivory uh, carving, carved out of an ivory tusk. And uh, you can't really see the detail that great. Ask me later and I'll send you the picture. But, I mean, the detail's amazing. That someone spent hours and hours and hours on this painstakingly. Go to the next one. Again, this is a ship carved from ivory. I mean, and if you could, if you could see what I can see, you can see even on deck, you can see these little men, their heads, their hands, everything, the detail. Imagine how many hours it took to carve this. Go to the next one. This was a tree trunk that somebody carved. You know, you see some crabs, a fishing net. I mean, it's amazing, the detail. I can't remember, is that the last one? Okay. Amazing, the detail. Somebody took a carving, a drill or a carving instrument and, and, and took, I mean, how many hours? I don't have the patience for that. I was going to admit, I'd give up about halfway, not even halfway through probably. God just didn't make me with that kind of ability. But you imagine the painstaking process that artist went through using that drill. You know, it makes me think of the fact that God takes every experience and he uses the drill of suffering like none others to carve away things that, not even good, not even, doesn't have to be bad things, but he carves away things that are unnecessary. He forces us, causes us to focus on what's important. And if we allow him, he takes it and he, and he works and he works and he works. Throughout our lives, he works. He uses every experience, everything just to carve us. And as long as we submit, the end result is something that's pretty amazing. And those carvings are amazing, but the end result for us is that we look like Jesus. We are, we will become as he is. Now, right now, we're still in the process children's song he's still working on me right to make me what I ought to be he's working on us and one day we will be that beautiful image that we see he uses it all the most beautiful Christians I've ever met are those who went through suffering and allowed God to use that to further mold them and shape them into his image they come through it with their faith intact Finally, because God loves us, he will not leave us alone in pain. That's another comfort he offers and something that's in total agreement. He may not give us all the answers, but he will never leave us alone. That's part of his character. He's faithful. He's true. And the promise of the second beatitude is just that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who are they comforted by? Jesus is saying, I will comfort you. I will not leave you. I will be with you through it all. He'll come to you. You may not feel it. You may not believe it, but it's true. He's there. He will come to you in your time of suffering because he came over 2,000 years ago. He will comfort you in the midst of your suffering because you can have a relationship with him because of what he did on the cross. God knows grief. God knows pain. God stood by willfully while his son was nailed to a tree. 
while he suffered and died so that you and I could receive that comfort. You can know that God loves you because the greatest expression of love is Jesus' death on the cross. And you can know you can receive comfort because three days later he arose from the dead. He's alive today. A dead person can't comfort somebody, but a living God can. And he will. We can know. Sometimes we don't know it. Sometimes we don't feel it. But he's always there. Many times working behind the scenes of our lives in the hidden scenes. But he's always there. He's always willing to comfort. He will never leave us. Does God care for me in the midst of my suffering? Yes, God cares for you. And if you doubt his love, look at the cross. Look to the cross. You know, again, in China, we, you know, we, and I talked to Eli about this. He's, he's in here this morning. We've been telling some stories about China, haven't we, buddy? And I talked to him about this, make sure he was okay with me telling this story. And he said he was. He just likes hearing about himself. But um, what, you know, what six-year-old doesn't, right? But one of the things, and I've, I've shared a little bit of this with you before. One of the things that we had to do in China is a few days after we got him, we got him at a government building, and a few days later we went back to his orphanage. And I, when they told me that, I thought, you guys are nuts. Why are we doing this? That, that can't end well. Um, but we did. And the minute we got there and he saw his nannies, he started screaming and kicking, and I'm holding on to him for dear life, because if I didn't, he would have, I mean, he was trying like nothing, everything his two-year-old little body had to get away from me, crying for that life that he knew. That's all he knew, right? What he didn't realize was that what we were taking him to was better than anything he would have had there. Not that our family's perfect, it's not. If you don't believe me, ask Gracie. I'll talk about you today, too. But I guarantee you what we have is so much better than what he would have had there. The future he had there was bleak. It was bleak. And, but he didn't understand that, right? And he cried and he cried almost the whole time we were there. The only time he didn't cry was the picture I showed you last week when he was showing us his bed because he got to show us something. The rest of the time he just cried, he cried, he cried. It was painful. It was awful. I mean, I was drenched in sweat trying to wrestle him and hold on to him. It was just awful. Well, something interesting happened. We got in the car. The guide took us away from there. He took us somewhere else, and, and he told us this happens almost every time. I put him in Mandy's lap. Mandy was holding him. He's still screaming, crying, and he cried himself to sleep. He's just exhausted. He finally just passed out from exhaustion on the way to where we were going. But when he woke up, something different. And the guide told us this. I didn't believe him, but it happened. He was a little bit different. He was mourning over that life, and his two-year-old mind, he didn't understand all this, but he was letting go a little bit. And when he woke up, he was a little more trusting. He trusted us a little bit more. He, he was willing to get a little closer to us. It was like, okay, I know that chapter of my life is over. I'm mourning over that. But on the other side, he went to sleep screaming and crying. He woke up in Mandy's arms being comforted. You see, that's kind of how it is with us. You know, if Jesus is one of many options, that's not enough. If you think you can find what you need in other places other than Christ, then you'll never experience it. If you think you can handle it on your own and you're not willing to admit your need, you're going to find out you're not enough. But if you're willing to surrender you'll find comfort and assurance. You see, Eli surrendered that day a little bit, and he taught us all a little lesson, I think. If we'll surrender 
to the life that God has for us, even though he was still hurting y'all, and we're still dealing with that as we grow. But if we're willing to surrender just a, just not just a little bit, everything to the life that God has for us, we will experience salvation and the comfort that can only come from a Savior who loves you and cares for you. Don't doubt God's love in the midst of your pain. Look to him. And if you haven't looked to him at all, the invitation has come. Receive the comfort of a Savior. Receive salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ. Let's just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer. Wherever you are here at home, God is waiting to give you the blessing of forgiveness and comfort that only he can. He's waiting to provide for your needs. Life won't be easy. There's going to be pain, but there's comfort that that goes beyond your ability to explain. And if you don't know Jesus, I encourage you just to cry out to him wherever you are. Lord, come into my life, and Lord, I know I've sinned, and I'm mourning over that sin right now. Forgive me. Maybe you're hurting. You're a follower of Christ, and you're hurting because of what's going on. You're hurting because of any number of things in your life. I can't tell you why. I can't give you the answers, but I can point you to the God who cares and who will comfort. Father, we come to you today in this moment. There's so much in our life, all of our lives, that's uncertain. There's hurting, there's pain, unanswered questions. And even though we may not have the answers that we want, things may not be happening in the time, the fashion that we choose, in the time frame that we would lay out for ourselves, we know that you are constant and you are pure and you are holy and you are faithful. That God, you are big enough to handle all that we face that if we look to you you will save us those who don't know you you will save us and set us apart for your service and then that begins a relationship a lifetime of being molded and shaped into your image we can know that you will use all things for our good not all things are good but you will use them in that process of carving us shaping us into your image that you will never leave us or forsake us and if we draw near to you you will draw near to us that we can feel your loving hand on our lives that we can experience your supernatural peace that we can crawl into your lap and into your arms and even though you are holy and separate you are a father who loves and cares for his children And I pray for those that are hurting that they will look to you, that they will receive that comfort and that peace. Lord, we thank you for the blessedness of mourning. We thank you for your love and for your care. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.